Hey kids, welcome to episode 8 of Rank and Review. Here's a riddle for you. What does Gremlins, The Ring, The Descent, Ghostbusters, Blair Witch Project, and The Exorcist have in common? Well, other than the fact that I endorse them all and think if you like horror movies you should watch them, all of them have terrible, terrible sequels. This episode marks the return of my dear friend Jeremy Cook as we discuss Terrible Twos. As usual, you guys, we are going to be discussing spoilers, and there's going to be some coarse language, so let's all be grown-ups about this, shall we? Enjoy Episode 8 of Rank and Review. So, uh, for the first time return guest, J. Adrian Cook. I know the first time we met, I kept on calling you J. Adrian Cook or Jeremy, but I have a solution. Okay, let's hear it. J. Adrian. J. Adrian? <laughs> this is J. Adrian Cook. You may not. No, okay, well, it's worth a shot. Anyway, this will be episode eight of Rankin Review with my returning guest, Jeremy Cook. And not only is it your second episode, but we're discussing... Sequels, which seems oddly appropriate. Let's hope that this episode is not as disappointing as the sequels that we're looking at today. <laughs> well, I did call them terrible twos. I don't think I was lying to you when I gave you the list. <laughs> no, but nevertheless, I thought that I was going to be having more fun watching these movies than I did. I thought there'd be some good laughs to be had, and there were some, but for the most part, we got a lot of banal uh, bullshit. But, you know, anything for you, Larry. <laughs> you are too kind, sir. Um, yeah, the six, quickly, the six movies that we're going to be discussing, fine sequels indeed. We have Gremlins 2, The New Batch. We have The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. The Descent, Part 2. The Ring 2. Ghostbusters 2. And, of course, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. Um, the discussion, yes, is for the first time on sequels. And we're going to probably do several episodes on the topic of sequels. But these ones in particular have to do with uh, films that I feel do a disservice to the original. Disappointing sequels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Considering that you and I have regularly done things which we would refer to as evenings of 
horror. Mm-hmm. I remember one Halloween where we had a Scott Valentine marathon. That was <laughs> one of the more perfect evenings of horror I could ever think of. And, uh, He's so dreamy. He is very dreamy. Uh, 49 cent video. I mean, I'm sure we rented movies from that place that no one else would day and touch back in the day just because we wanted to find the worst movies possible. <laughs> so... Uh, a surprising number of those movies were sequels, were they not? I mean, during the true. Scott Valentine Film Festivals, The Unborn 2 and Carnosaur 3, if I recall. Yeah, well, Scott Valentine is not is so good that he doesn't need to be in the original movie. He just he can attach himself to any franchise and just, like a chameleon, just absorb himself into it. By the way, if you don't know who Scott Valentine is, good for you. <laughs> yeah, we could discuss who he is, but I don't want to talk so about it. It's going to be wasting valuable time. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should discuss, do we want to discuss what makes a good sequel, or should we discuss what makes a bad one? <laughs> let's let's stick to bad sequels here. Um, I think that the root problem that makes a sequel usually not as good as the original is probably the profit motive. I think this right. is where all of the trouble starts. You, If you have a good horror movie in particular, it's because it's a good movie, and then when a sequel comes along, it's because somebody wants to make a buck off of it, usually the suits. Right. And when the suits are involved, it's usually trouble. Well, that's what stings about a lot of these movies, because, well, at least two of the six that I can refer to, the original director returned. And yeah. uh, a lot of the original cast returned. Uh, it's the same ingredients to a much worse result. <laughs> um, I, In a way, if it's some completely different guy who was hired to do the job, I'm almost more sympathetic to his plight than I am if it's somebody just doing a faint rehash of what they already have done. Yeah, well, a lot of the time, especially with horror movies, the story is over yeah. in the first movie. And if you were to bring it back to life, then it causes problems with your plot. Yeah. You've either compromised the story you've already told, or you're telling the same story again. Exactly. And to that, uh, to that end, one of the things that often gets done in poor sequels is bringing back characters that are dead. Yes. That were killed in the first movie. I believe we will bump into this. Yes, there are two movies on this list. Are there more? Where the, a dead character has been revived? Uh, anyway, the reason why this is done is once again the profit motive. The, the suits think to themselves, the reason why this movie was was a success was because of this particular actor. Is there some way that we could bring them back? Yes. Although it doesn't, not just films are, are guilty of this. I believe that uh, Michael Crichton, uh, when he wrote his sequel to The Lost World, brought a character who had clearly died in the first book. Into this, into the novel. So I guess even even the original author is perfectly able to shit the bed in this regard. <laughs> but yeah, if somebody is dead, they should they should stay dead. Unless this is a zombie movie, they should stay dead. Dead. Well, there's usually some reason why they're brought back, but in the end, it's it's the profit motive yeah. that does it. I don't care how many flashbacks are featured. I don't care about the magic that was used in the technology. It's kind of lame, usually. Yeah. Uh, there's also some other patterns here, which I wouldn't mind discussing here. Oh, um, I've noticed that there's problems with plots when you have nullification of meaningful events in the original movie yes. by having events happen in this sequel that just make everything pointless. Yeah. We'll run into that. 
quite a bit. But, you know, the one I'm thinking of here is Alien 3. Yeah, probably the most egregious for this, because everybody loves aliens, everybody loves Newt, everybody loves Hicks, and Newt and Hicks are wiped off the table very unceremoniously within the first 60 seconds of the movie. With Starting the, things off in the wrong foot, absolutely. If I'm not mistaken, it's even just a computer screen tells us that they're dead. Yeah. We don't even have a mourning period with Ripley or anything like that. No. No. Yep, so that time you went back to rest the newfound orphan daughter from uh, the Alien Queen. All for naught. Yep. The entire climactic sequence of aliens yep. was all for naught. <laughs> Indeed. So you mentioned this problem before as well, uh, making an exact, trying to make an exact copy of the original movie, yeah. and making one that's so similar that it's boring. Yeah. They will call that typically like paying homage to the original film, but a lot of the times, yeah, if you're hearing direct lines riffed from the previous film or... Yes. Huh? Huh? Remember that? Remember that other better film? Huh? <laughs> That's usually a bad sign. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, next, trying to make an exact copy of the first movie and you get something uncanny. Um, for those of you who don't know what uncanny means, I'll be talking about it uh, at length. And we discuss Ghostbusters too. Hopefully. Very good. Uh, next, trying to be too different from the first movie and making an abomination. See, this is this is almost a noble failure in some ways. <laughs> it's just like, no, I'm not going to make some derivative thing. I'm going to make this movie mine. Yes. <laughs> I guess is it hypocritical of me to say? I mean, you do have to do service to the original film to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> like. Uh, I don't want the same movie, but I want this movie to be in the same world as that first movie, you know? And touch on maybe some of the same themes and recall some of the stuff that made you feel good about the last movie, maybe bring about the same atmosphere. Or the things that are the same or the things that are necessary. Mm -hmm. The villain is the same, typically. The location is the same. But is there other ways that we can change it up besides going, I don't know, crazy meta or... Uh, it yeah. was all a dream. <laughs> anyway, if you don't do that, you end up with Blair Witch 2. Yes. Uh, so that's the list I came up with. Can you think of anything else you would need to add to that? Well, here's an interesting thing, and, and we haven't got to it as often in the modern age, but it does happen. Back in the day, back in the, the Hollywood heyday, you know, if you didn't do a couple dozen films a year, you, there was something wrong with you, right? <laughs> yep. So, you know, they'll have seven or eight Frankenstein movies, and then they'll have... Frankenstein meets Dracula. Our version, of course, would be the immortal classic Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. And then the step beyond that is, you know, the Wolfman meets Abbott and Costello. Yes. Well, that, that's the one thing that we haven't got to yet. I mean, I guess Freddy Krueger slowly became a stand-up comedian over the course of his films, but we haven't had, you know, uh, the new Friday the 13th movie where... Uh, I don't know, Jimmy Fallon is the wise Kraken sidekick to Jason while he's killing all of these people. <laughs> I'm not saying I endorse it, but I'm saying that's another route that has been traveled, where Hollywood. they go over silly with it. Hollywood, if you're listening, Freddy Krueger versus the cast of Friends. Okay, yes. we've got a winner. That is a million dollars waiting to be made right there. Uh, no, but I mean taking the horror out of it and moving it to a more sort of satirical 
campy fun level. I mean, you, some would argue that Friday the 13th did that, whereas the first part of the series is at least trying to take itself somewhat seriously. And uh, the deeper into it you get, the more ridiculous and bizarre and comical things become. You know? I'm starting to get flashbacks from Gremlins 2 here. There you go. Maybe we should talk about this movie. <laughs> well, let's just jump right in, shall we? Yeah. Remember the last time we told you not to feed them after midnight. We told you to keep them away from the light. And the most important warning of all, we told you to never, ever get them wet. You didn't listen. They're mutating. Sir, is the building on fire? No, no, that's a false alarm. Uh, Are you trying to panic New York City? Absolutely not. So the monsters are real? I didn't say that. Gremlins 2. The new batch. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. All right, well, in the mid to late 80s, there was a fairly huge box office hit called Gremlins. Uh, I have a vague memory of seeing it in the theater. And I remember, as a child, being creeped up enough, uh, creeped out enough by it that when we were coming back to the car, I was worried that there might be gremlins under the car or messing with the instruments in the car. <laughs> I hid my eyes during the scene when the claymation gremlins come out, and yeah. I didn't watch the rest of the movie. <laughs> uh, and uh, even though I don't think I think there's a lot of ke- creaks and groans in the original Gremlins, I'm a defender of it in in some ways. I think it does still hold up as a more or less entertaining, fun movie. And uh, as a child, I remember watching over and over and over again a sequence where uh, Billy's mom takes on four gremlins at once in her kitchen. <laughs> yes. I-, I thought this was the pinnacle of cinema, really, at the point. Well, that's not true. I-, I guess I was still pretty firmly in the world of Star Wars and whatnot like that. But Gremlins is a big chunk of my childhood. So, same with Ghostbusters. Like I was saying, that Gremlins theme... La 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 I remember, I remember going to school with my friends and we were just, for no reason, apropos of nothing. La 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 la. It hit a nerve. It hit a nerve. And several years later, I believe in 1990, the time was right for Gremlins 2, A New Batch. And the director returns, Joe Dante. And uh, he's very solid genre director. He did The Howling, a uh, fairly respected, uh, you know, <laughs> werewolf picture. And uh, he's been around forever. Um, and here he is. You know, I, we should probably warn the audience at this point. Um, you know, we, you, you issue a spoiler warning. At the top of the episode, we can talk about whatever we want. Is, well, I've, I've just realized that we're not just in danger of spoiling the movies we're talking about, but we're going to be, we like to pretty much necessarily have to spoil the original the movies presumed. that we're discussing. Well, <laughs> in some cases we've already discussed the movie, like Ghostbusters, and in okay. other cases, I think we're upfront about it. <laughs> you know what movies we're talking about, and presumably... If you're willing to hear about the sequels, you're willing to take that risk. But yes, spoilers throughout. <laughs> yeah. 
this movie doesn't lie to you, I mean, about what it is. It does open with a cartoon. <laughs> it tells you kind of what audience this movie was geared toward. Uh, I think with Gremlins, you might be able to enjoy it as an adult, but with Gremlins 2, you really get the feeling that this is geared towards people younger than 13 years of age. Gremlins came out right around the controversial PG-13 time, right? Uh, yes. They sort of just established that rating, and Gremlins was sort of used as an example of a movie that was maybe pushing the envelope too far, mm-hmm. as far as little kitties. So now they have the PG-13 rating, but instead of using it, they just made a straight-up PG, quite wacky, silly, much more cartoony movie. Indeed. Um, that said, the original Gremlins has some pretty ridiculous stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Like Gizmo's driving around in a toy Barbie car that apparently is fully functional and whatnot. There is ridiculous moments, but nothing as cartoonish and as openly silly and childish as what we see throughout Gremlins 2. Indeed. I think maybe a short plot synopsis might be in order. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, our hero from the first movie, Billy, is it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Played by Zach Galligan. Is working at Clamp Towers, and the Clamp is probably some combination of Ted Turner and Donald Trump. <laughs> you put that together yourself, did you? I sure did. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, the, the humor in this movie is fairly heavy-handed, and it, if there's satire in it, it's pretty obvious what they're talking about. Any case, he's working at Clamp Towers and... The most technologically advanced tower in this city. <laughs> indeed. And he gets a hold of Gizmo when Gizmo's owner dies, and surprise, surprise, Gizmo gets covered in water, and then the resulting Mogwai eat after midnight, and before long the tower is filled with gremlins getting into a genetic laboratory and changing themselves... Yes. Mutating themselves into several different forms. The spider gremlin, the lightning gremlin, any kind of gag imaginable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're, they're giving us more gremlins, but much more puppety. Well, they're always puppet, but much more clearly cartoonish. There's even like a, a, a girl gremlin who puts on lipstick and is all yeah. romantic. <laughs> and there's a spider gremlin. Did I mention yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, of course, the most important one, which you also mentioned, was the uh, gremlin made of electricity, which Mm -hmm. comes into play in the third act, if you make it that far. Well, this movie really had everything, didn't it? Like, (laughs) not just in terms of the number of ways that the gags came at you, but it had CGI, it had claymation, it had traditional animation, it had just tons of celebrity cameos. Yes, indeed. I did enjoy watching Leonard Malton get eaten by gremlins. I guess I got a cheap laugh out of that. I didn't like that joke. It was a little too self-referential to me. Well, but, but the whole movie is pretty much on the nose as far as stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk about what I call as the Charlie Kaufman sequence of the movie, <laughs> where the gremlins get into the film uh, projector and destroy. The, we stop watching the film for a little while until Hulk Hogan gets up out of the audience and demands that they put the movie back on. Like, I, that's they got meta before meta was cool. I don't know if Charlie Kaufman was an uncredited writer on the screenplay, but uh, what is going on, you guys? And are kids going to get that, or is that just genuinely going to fuck up a little kid if they're watching this movie? Like, uh, when I was well, I guess I was thirteen when I watched this. I really, really enjoyed the Hulk Hogan part. Right. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, uh, when it was released to VHS. Because the uh, movie theater sequence didn't work anymore, they actually 
recorded a bit where it made it seem like the gremlins were in your television messing with it. See, that almost could work, I think. But, yeah. uh, or at least uh, I, I would have appreciated it more. But no, this is, I guess, I must have the theatrical cut. I'm not going to track down that other version. I think we'll just have to live with what we've, <laughs> what yes. we've watched here. Fair enough. And, and to be fair, I think it may be hidden somewhere on that DVD, but I did not have the patience to go looking for it. Right. Uh, so, we've talked about the number of gags. I think it's fair to say that the plot grinds to a complete halt in the middle of Act 2 to support this huge number of gags, and it begins to feel very cumbersome. And Agreed. This may be the main problem with this movie, aside from the fact that it's not geared toward us as, as adults. I found the tonal shift. Like I said, the original movie was kind of silly. It had moments of silliness. All of the, the gremlins went into the movie theater and watched Snow White and were having a gay old time. And Spike had a couple of one-liners. But honestly, the, 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 the fuck you moment of the movie for me uh, was when the one gremlin got super smart and started speaking very eruditely in an almost British accent. Well, here, we're going to get on with the show now, and I'm a talking gremlin, none like anything you've ever seen before. And it wasn't funny, and it wasn't scary, and it was like... I, uh, that's, yep. That was sort of the moment where, like, I was like, okay, this movie doesn't give a shit about the original movie. This movie is clearly just to make money. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. The first movie was a bit of a horror movie, had some comic angle to it this is completely comedy maybe there's a bit of a horror when one of the gremlins gets a submachine gun but yeah there's nothing scary about this movie no no and i don't think they were trying to be that scary about it and the whole idea of this being the most technologically advanced building which is kind of hilarious too considering the technology that we're shown in this movie um gremlins in their traditional idea and they at least use this a little bit in the original film, they get into machinery and they sabotage it and they wreck it and they cause mischief that way. I remember an old lady in the original film who had a, a chair that would lift her up her stairs and they end up rigging it so it shoots her right out of her house. And uh, mm-hmm. they get into one guy's tractor and drive the tractor right through his house. And, uh, you know, these things, they didn't use that. And they seemed like they were going to because they set this building up to be the most technologically advanced. But really, the ground Gremlins were just sort of gags and, you know, boo moments. I didn't see. It was all about the genetic engineering, I guess, in the middle part, rather than the, te- the, the technology. So yeah. They were more yeah. interested in making a new variety of gremlins than making the gremlins behave yeah. like gremlins. <laughs> so, I've mentioned the comedy was heavy-handed. Um, that being said, there are a few moments that I enjoyed. I know you like the part with Hulk Hogan, the breaking <laughs> down, but uh, I... There's some really good lines in it, too. I like the, the tough old veteran, uh, World War II veteran, who knew about the gremlins when he was flying planes. Mm-hmm. From the first movie, he's in this movie, and he comes back fighting gremlins again. I believe he did come back from the dead, too. Although No, it, he did not. He did not? No, he survived. Oh, I thought he got run over in the his, first movie. His house was crashed into by the tractor, but he, he, survived. he survived. Okay. In any case, he hates these gremlins, yet when he comes in on them uh, doing a song and dance number, he listens to them for a while and says, these guys aren't bad. (laughs) 
comedy gold. And I really liked the scene with the guy. When, when Billy tries to explain to the security personnel what the gremlins and the mogwai are and how they're not supposed to eat after midnight, they all start laughing at him yeah. and saying, oh, okay, you know, pointing up the... What time zone would yeah, this be applicable to? what time zone to? is applicable to? And what happens if a gremlin eats something and a seed gets caught in his, te- in his teeth and it comes out after midnight? Yeah. Wow, that's that's really deep. <laughs> it's once again asking these questions of the original movie. That so clearly, the the writer was thinking about these things. Indeed, <laughs> I don't want to give too much defense to the first movie either because it was written by Chris Columbus, and I believe him to be a bit of a cancer on Hollywood. But uh, no he comment. brought us things like uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and. Uh, uh, I believe he directed the first Harry Potter, but he typically does fairly saccharine, fun-for-the-whole-family movies that do nothing but cause me cavities, usually. Uh, this was one of his first big screenplays, and, uh, yeah. Uh, he had nothing to do with the sequel, so I can't really hang this one on him. I bet you he got a check out of it, though. <laughs> he surely did. So... The thing about Gremlins is that, once again, I'll point out, it's not a movie meant for our demographic. That being said, when I was 13, this was possibly the greatest movie I had ever seen. Really? Yes. I loved this movie more than any other movie I had ever seen before when I was 13. I grew out of that phase, of course, but it's important to note that... Even though we may not have enjoyed it, it can still be enjoyable to someone younger than us. Oh, absolutely. And uh, again, I don't think the original Gremlins was that sacred a text, but I thought it was a fair example of Terrible Twos in that they really changed the kind of movie they were making, I think, pretty drastically. I remember, even as a young fellow, I don't remember how old I was when I saw it, but I was sort of expecting it to be scared, or to be scary, and, and to be scared by it, and I wasn't. And like I said, when the gremlin started talking, and uh, I just... That talking gremlin was a piece of shit. Yeah, even when I was 13 or whatever, I called shenanigans on that. (laughs) Four years ago, the exorcist shocked the world. Now, the struggle between good and evil goes on. Exorcist 2, The Heretic. first one sure was a great movie, wasn't, wasn't it, Larry? It was fantastic. I rated it as number one when we did Bedeviled Movies. It was just a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. 1974, well put together, well acted, scary as hell, still today, scary as hell. And the second one sure isn't good. No, it really, really isn't. <laughs> it may be... You know, I've seen a lot of bad movies. You have. I have seen a lot of bad movies. And this one, I think it's up there. I'm not going to commit to its spot, but it really is just a piece of garbage. And it's long. It's very long. <laughs> now, I, the, I think what they were going for with this movie was to, to take the high road and remove themselves from some of the vomiting and... 
profanity and outright scares that we saw in the original Exorcist and give us a sense of spiritual horror. Um, spiritual horror being the type of horror you feel when uh, your worldview is challenged so completely, you realize everything around you is wrong. There are lots of great examples of spiritual horror. I think H.P. Lovecraft was a master of that genre. At the same time, it does not do its job. It is not a scary movie spiritually at all. Or in any aspect of the movie. Mm -hmm. We watched this together, and I kept on waiting for even a cheap scare, like a boo moment. No, that's not this movie's style. They... There's not no scares, though. Like, you are making a horror movie, Mr. Borman, right? <laughs> like, this is supposed <laughs> to be frightening or unnerving in some way. Mm -hmm. In a brief mention to try and service the plot, such as it is, um, Richard Burton plays a priest uh, who is troubled because he's witnessed some horrible stuff in the past. A woman lit herself on fire who may or may not have been possessed. <laughs> Can we speed this up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we catch up with Regan. She's now going to some performance school, and uh, she's also seeing a shrink to help deal with the fact that her childhood was so completely and deeply fucked up by being possessed of a demon. And so there's this really stupid, crappy, horrible plot device, this dual hypnotism machine which Louise Fletcher who's yeah. playing her psychiatrist has this magical hypno machine that will allow her to basically see the visions that Regan's having in her head somehow yeah because that's what hypnosis is it's not where you put somebody under and talk to their unconscious self no, you see her yeah it's a Vulcan mind meld machine is what this thing is I don't think you know some people doubt hypnotism works uh, but I don't think anyone thinks hypnotism is like this. There is a similarly pretentious and overwrought horror movie called The Cell that kind of rips this idea off. And I if you're going to steal something, don't steal from The Exorcist too. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> you're discussing the plot arc of this movie. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, she's seeing a psychiatrist. I don't even remember how the priest gets wrapped up with the psychiatrist. <laughs> Um, but Regan is in some sort of vague jeopardy. She's being targeted by evil powers, and I guess the question of the movie is, why are they after her, and how can they be stopped? It's interesting, because Regan really doesn't seem to be in a lot of danger in very many scenes in this movie. We're told she's in danger repeatedly by the characters, but we're not shown... How or why? I guess she collapses a few times, yeah. but yeah. Well, the most dangerous thing about her life is that her apartment has a suicide perch. <laughs> Wait. That's another thing about this movie. I don't even know, like, I, gotta, I know we're all over the place already, but this is just in <laughs> keeping with what a mess this movie is. Mm -hmm. There is glass. There is, like, transparent surfaces everywhere in this movie. I have to believe this was a conscious choice. Mirrors and glass and big windows everywhere. Uh, when you're in one room, you can see into all the other rooms around you and what's going on in the background for no reason. Uh, apparently, while you're doing hypnotherapy, you need an audience, I guess. But. I had not considered that. That does seem like a directorial choice, and it's got to be related in some way to the high road kind of approach they took to this show. But. Her apartment, where she almost commits suicide, has like these 10-foot-tall sheets of glass everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> There's dividing lines for her. And uh, 
she can walk out onto her balcony and she's like 30 stories up and there is a corner of her balcony which has nothing nothing you can just walk right off to your doom yes <laughs> there are so many elements of this film that are just huge question marks why is it there uh, we'll never we'll never know because we've moved on <laughs> we've moved on we haven't even got to uh... <laughs> we haven't even finished describing the plot yet uh, he Did goes we? all over the, yeah, no 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 he goes all over the world looking for um, this person who's had contact with the demon Pazuzu before to see Correct. if uh, to see if that he can help uh, Regan that's her name Regan <laughs> And so, yeah, that's what a lot of the a lot of the action is is Father Lamont cr- crossing all over the world, but let's not forget Max von Sydow. Max von Sydow appearing for inexplicably in flashbacks, and having very vague connections to the plot that I don't buy. Honestly, Louise Fletcher and Max von Sydow are both officially down a notch in my books just for being in this movie. <laughs> endless, <laughs> endless shots of locusts and then music that's like... Oh, oh my God. Okay, so... And we haven't got to Darth Vader yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um... <laughs> Plenty of unintentional laughs. <laughs> yes, um, we have not just okay. You you want to mention this? Okay. You pointed out at some point while you're watching The Exorcist two. If you're watching The Exorcist two, you're going to come to the conclusion that Regan bears a resemblance to Miss Piggy. Now, <laughs> that sounds really mean, and I don't think that the, <laughs> the actress is particularly unattractive or anything. There's something about what she's wearing and the lighting. There's particularly this scene where she's doing a tap dance routine. And it... <laughs> the way once, her hair is fluffed out like yeah, that. <laughs> once I had it in my head that Regan looked like Miss Piggy, the movie really, I mean, started to implode. Because every time she entered, it was like, Oh, creamy! I'm possessed of the devil! <laughs> <You know? laughs> Now, maybe that's intentionally... Maybe that's just me, but I, I, anybody who watches the movie... Now, now it's ruined. Back me up. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> I also really like the scene where Father Lamont attempts to put out a fire by hitting it with a crutch. With a crutch. <laughs> that, was, that was some hilarity. And then the biggest one of all, James Earl Jones. And I, what, in the role I hope he'll be remembered for as the guy wearing that locust costume, able to keep a straight face while yeah. doing it. Yes, well, the father is having some kind of religious vision, <laughs> so he's in a vision, so I guess he can wear whatever he wants, but dear God. So, um, <laughs> the uh, really poorly edited little show here, too, like, I think the editing deserves some mention, like, yeah. ju- not just continuity issues, but clearly some scenes that were filmed uh, and the editor decided that, okay, let's splice in some other scene and then cut back to the scene as it was in progress. And, well, it, it's seamless. No one will know that it was the same scene. <laughs> They're uh, just taking the ride, man. <laughs> yeah, and there's uh, there's a scene there that's missing, too, a very, fairly important thing where uh, Father Lamont can't find James Earl Jones <laughs> and he decides to call upon the demon Pazuzu to find James Earl Jones. But we don't see that scene where he's experiencing hardship finding James Earl Jones. We just we're just told, oh, this is too hard. Step one for a priest: ask a demon for help. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna back it up here. Yes. Remember The Exorcist? <laughs> the Exorcist was an incredibly scary movie. That was and a great movie. It really was. And they had lots of scenes that's you know would be very deliberately paced. But the atmosphere was such that the air that was given to it, the the way it was allowed to let breathe, actually added to the suspense. Yes. Whereas I found there were plenty of scenes like this in Exorcist Two where, you know, <laughs> they leave us a lot of air to be scared, but we're not scared. We're bored. <laughs> it's sort of like the opposite of the experience of the original Exorcist. Mm-hmm. I, I mean... Well, uh, okay. okay. We've already said that we feel almost no jeopardy for Regan. Yeah, because we have no idea what she's going through. What she's going through. And we've well said that the Louise Fletcher character doesn't really make sense. This is like a different science fiction movie, which gets largely abandoned about halfway through. Right? Indeed. But her damn machine keeps showing up. <laughs> yeah. Um, this could maybe be called a science fiction movie, but I certainly don't think it could be called a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. Did you... You told me something about... You read something about one of the producers being pretty honest about the fact that when they set out to make the sequel, they were just... Yeah, that was on Wikipedia. Uh, when they first came to the movie, they were planning on making a, an exact copy to... Uh, cash in on the success of The Exorcist. And then from there, things just kind of got wildly out of control, where they went over budget and had constant rewrites of the screenplay, and everyone was getting sick. And Yeah, it was a disaster uh, in production, uh, which once again, it shows in the editing. Yeah. I have this note here that says that they set out to do a vague copy of The Exorcist and ended up with a spectacular epic failure. Or, in quotes, they meant to fart and ended up shitting themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Well said, sir. (laughs) So, there's a couple uh, edits in this. I think you know the ones where it ends with somebody screaming and they cut away from the scream. Very abruptly. Very abruptly mid-scream. And... I'm sure they were hoping this would be an unsettling effect, but it's just hilarious whenever it happens. <laughs> if you could edit in the scream, I'm thinking of from the very start of The Exorcist 2, that would be good for an example. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see if the I can woman find that. who sets herself on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the yeah, this this is just a never a good idea. We saw this idea used again, once again in a comic setting. Hot Rod is what I'm thinking of here with the Oh Kathy scene. The Oh Kathy insert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh Kathy. <laughs> oh. Ah. Uh, That's funny. That's the second time Hot Rod has come up in my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, you'd be much better. You'd make much better use of your time watching Hot Rod twice than watching this movie once. Indeed, the, I mentioned spiritual horror earlier on in this movie, and that was their goal. And it takes what two hours plus for them to try to achieve that, and they fail. Yeah, look I at can... the original Exorcist, which is good, <laughs> which is a very good show. And there's one scene in there where they all cram into Regan's bedroom and she's up there getting thrown up against the bed and going, Fuck me! Fuck me! Fuck me! Yeah. In one minute, 
they managed to instill a sense of spiritual horror. And it works so well. It you, This movie is a failure on just about every level I can imagine. A disaster. Spectacularly awful. And I mean, just in the range of how good The Exorcist is to how bad this movie is, it's amazing that there's an Exorcist 3. It's amazing <laughs> that there's an Exorcist 3. But I'm confident that even if they go to Exorcist 50 now, we have seen the worst Exorcist film. I think that it would be a chore to make a less frightening exorcism movie than this. I honestly think if they were trying to make, consciously trying to make a disastrously bad movie, <laughs> they would not have done better than Exorcist to the Heretic. I am flabbergasted. I am flabbergasted. The people involved in this Richard fucking Burton, you know? <laughs> I mean, yes, Christopher fucking Lee was in a cameo role in Gremlins 2, but he wasn't headlining it. <laughs> Please don't watch this movie, you guys. If you haven't seen it, if I do one service for you through the rank and review, just don't watch it. Larry, can we stop talking about The Exorcist 2 now? Agreed. Critics called The Descent the most terrifying monster movie since Alien. In 2009, it's time to return. To the dark. There was a fantastic uh, British monster movie called The Descent. came out about uh, seven or eight years ago. 2004, Neil, right? Yeah, I think. Neil Marshall directed it. He's a totally worth-keeping-your-eye-on genre director. I'll take a look at anything he makes. Um, it was really claustrophobic. It was uh, sort of female-centric. All of the characters are just a bunch of British spelunkers exploring some caves and bumping into some pretty pissed-off-looking golem-like creatures. <laughs> Subhumans. Yeah. A, they never actually give them a name, so... No. Yeah. Uh, so I think they're referred to as crawlers at one point in this one, but uh, mm. anyway, uh, it was a surprise success, both on the, that side of the ocean and this. And it instantly made it to my uh, favorite movies list. Yeah, oh, it's one of the best monster movies for sure that I think you can watch um, absolutely terrifying <laughs> my, my wife actually can hardly handle that movie and it's even less about the monsters and more about the claustrophobia she just does not like all those narrow columns and channels but sadly we're not here to talk about The Descent uh, we're here to talk about The Descent Part 2 and uh, you were talking about earlier, before we discussed the Gremlins, that we're going to have to spoil both movies. And yes. I'm going to have to do that here as well, because it's interesting that The Scent had different endings, depending on where you saw it. <laughs> okay, uh, There was the ending in which our main character, played by Shauna McDonald, uh, gets out, and it, it, it ends with her in a false scare at a highway in an empty car. And then there's an ending where all of that happens, but when that false scare happens... She wakes up in the cave, and she's still lost. Surrounded and, by hundreds of these creatures. Yeah. 
And it's the ending that makes sense. It's the ending that's right. I mean, if there was a way out of that cave system, they they should have found it. And, and like, uh, all basically everyone dies except for her. And just at the last moment, oh, there's the way out. I'm free, you know. It was a complete wish fulfillment ending. And I thought the stronger ending was her alone in the cave, having lost her mind and just waiting her fate. Maybe not the happiest ending in the world, but a good one and one that you, you know, will, will leave you thinking, you know. The Descent Part 2 abandons that ending entirely. Shauna got, the actress, the character, I can't remember her name right now, the character got out of the cave. She was rescued and the people who rescue her want Sarah, to... Sarah, that's Sarah her name. Sarah is her name, thank you. The people who rescued her really want to find out what happened to the rest of the girls in her crew. And since she's catatonic and not able to communicate fully what happened... They go back to the cave system with her, which is well. She's, she's also got her memories repressed, too. yeah, emotionally repressed. But it, it's a, it's a direct continuation, which is kind of cool. I like it when horror movies pick up directly when they left off. I just think that that's not the approach I would have preferred they take with well, the descent to. Please, Jeremy. That's the thing about this. This is one of a, a few things in this movie that I call shenanigans on. Mm-hmm. Someone with repressed memories like that. I do not believe Sarah would have gone back to that cave. I don't even think if you she could couldn't remember what happened in there. Exactly. Like if if I'm sorry, if you had something bad happen with Uncle Cletus, <laughs> you would not go back to that corner of the barn again. Yeah. If Sarah was in this situation, as soon as they even suggested she go back there, she would start screaming and crying, and she would have to be dragged there. Yeah. No, it does not work for me. And regardless of the fact that she doesn't remember what happened, she's covered with gore and blood. Clearly something terrible has happened. (laughs) Uh, Why involve this already catatonic woman? If you know where the cave system is, then she doesn't need to be there, really. I don't know how much help she's going to be on a script level. That does not work. It's kind of unfortunate, though, because I don't think it's a bad put-together movie, necessarily. I think it's reasonably well-acted and reasonably well-made. I think the great sin that this movie commits is against its original. Now, is it fair to judge it wholly on that, or do we have to lick our wounds like we do with Alien 3 and try to judge the movie in spite of the fact that it took a hot, wet shit on the movie that we liked? We're judging these movies on the basis of disappointing sequels so that's what we're here to talk about and this is a very disappointing sequel because not only okay let's talk about Juno because this is a case of another dead character clearly dead character in the original film Juno is directly responsible for getting everybody into this scenario she lied to them about it being a known cave system it was an unknown cave system and she didn't tell people where we were going a large part of the reason that they are in such a terrible position is because Juno was just all gung-ho also there was tension because Juno was had been sleeping with Sarah's late husband. And when Sarah discovers this, the last thing we see of Juno is Sarah plunging a pickaxe into her leg as a horde of subhumans descend upon them. Yeah, and it's and not just because of the husband. I think the husband has to do with that. But Juno also in, uh, inadvertently kills one of the other girls. Well, almost kills her. leaves her for dead. She, it's understandable. Her friend grabs her from behind. She's just been attacked. She spins around and hacks her and cuts her in the throat. Yes. But instead of staying there with her, 
she basically leaves her there to bleed out. Uh, so so there were a lot of things leading up to Juno's falling, and uh, her leg was destroyed. Whether or not they showed us, like, her death... And they didn't, and that's probably where they think they can sneak in with this kind of shenanigan. In the original, her leg is basically destroyed, stabbed right through, and she is surrounded by dozens of these things. She's probably mortally wounded just from the leg wound, but with these guys coming to eat her... There's no way out for her, and we don't need to see her die, because it's very clear what happened. Mm -hmm. We even hear her death cry in the original. I believe we hear her screaming and echoing down the uh, corridors, right? Yep, and as I was watching The Descent 2, I was thinking to myself, oh please, oh please, do not bring Juno back, do not bring Juno back, because if they do that, they'll really fuck up the story of the first movie, and oh, there's Juno, god damn it! Yeah. Actually, I was going to say the exact same thing. I'd heard that the original cast was involved in this movie, so I knew something like this was coming. But then they found the camera. Early on, they find the camera that the girls were filming themselves before shit went bad. So we did get another glimpse of the original cast, which was kind of cool to see them again. But I had the same thought you did. I'm like, they're going to bring Juno back. You know what? I'd almost, I'll almost let them go with the Sarah business, but bringing Juno back... Too far. Too far. Too far. And again, there's no real reason why this couldn't have just been another group of Spelunkers who happened upon this cave. They didn't need to directly hitch the movie, at least to bend over backwards to make these movies related in that way. It works against it, which is so frustrating because I do think there are good sequences of suspense and violence in this movie, but mm-hmm. by the time we get to them, they've shat the bed fairly thoroughly for me, you know? Yeah. Well, I wasn't so much scared by this movie because the the plot issues were just so overwhelming to me that I was completely out of the movie. Yeah. Uh I will say something good about it, though. No way. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart for bleed out. Um, the first time this happened, I, I was it was reading a book called "Till We Have Faces," I believe by C.S. Lewis, and in it, our heroine is having a duel with some guy, and she slashes him just below his knee with her sword, and says, and "That's the end of it." And this is the first time I've ever heard of the femoral artery bleed out, mm-hmm. and I said to myself, "You can do that." <laughs> and then, yes, it was confirmed as I took a first aid course a little bit later on, where the instructor said, "If you come across a victim with a femoral artery bleed, the best thing you can do is give them someone to talk to for two minutes before they, they die. die." Yeah, and since then. Artery bleedouts have become one of my most disturbing and therefore loved ways for a character to die in a horror movie. And this uh, Descent Part 2 provides us with five carotid artery bleedouts as these subhumans defend, uh, descend on characters and rip their throats out. They so. seem to attack the throat. They seem to know to go for the kill, hey? Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's in keeping with the original, too. There's a lot of gurgle <laughs> to the original film. Yeah, it worked for me, <laughs> basically what I want to say. Uh, one thing that did work for me, I'm afraid they cheaped out on the creature sound effects. They had some... Same ones? Uh, the same ones, that's not such a problem. The real problem is that a little bit later on, the lazy, lazy, lazy lion roar enters. You can hear this in lots of 
uh, horror movies where the monsters roar like lions. And yes, it speaks to us on some primal level because as hunter-gatherers fearing the roar of the lion on the savannah, blah, blah, blah. But I've heard it so many times, I know exactly what it sounds like. And it's just lazy to me. It has no place in the Appalachian underground. <laughs> it has no place coming out of the mouth of some sort of subhuman degenerate living yeah. there. Yeah. There was a character who's kind of the Mr. Cooper character. Uh, he's like the sheriff or chief investigator who refuses to believe that anything is up or assumes that it's Sarah's fault. Or he's, yeah. he's the guy who's constantly saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And the whole time through the movie, I was watching it, especially when I rewatched it for this, uh, this occasion. I was like, who the hell is that guy? And I looked him up. His name is Gavin O'Herlihy. And I know him from Willow. <laughs> mm-hmm. He plays a, a great warrior character in Willow. And I, I don't know that I've seen him in anything else in between these two. So I, I'm mentioning this guy specifically because I've, as far as I know, I've only seen him in two movies. But he clearly had made an impression on me. <laughs> <laughs> well. And uh, he has a great Cooper fate in that uh, he's, he's trying to drag one of the girls down with him. And they have to sort of hack free of him. Right? Yes. <laughs> So there are cool bits to the movie, I think. Uh, I just think, like I said, they did such a disservice to the original movie that that kind of eclipsed what was working. Once again, I could not agree more. We didn't do anything wrong. We did what anyone would do. It's all for honey. She's not coming back. How do you know that? Have you ever seen something so scary that you just, you had to show someone else? Hey. I want to show you something. The Ring 2. <laughs> the American Ring 2 will brings Naomi Watts back for seconds uh, to deal with the evil spirit of Samara. Uh, how about you tell us, where did we leave off with uh, The Ring? We left off The Ring with... Uh, okay, the story of The Ring, in a nutshell, first of all, there's an evil spirit named Samara who can make a videotape, and if you watch this videotape, you get a phone call, and a week later you get killed. At the end of The Ring, Naomi Watts, Rachel is her name, is her character's name, Rachel has discovered that if you make a copy of the videotape and make somebody else watch it... You're off the hook. You're off the hook. Samara does not come out of your, her, your TV to kill you and make you die of a heart attack. So for The Descent, Descent 2, uh, unfortunately, someone in her new hometown dies uh, of a Samara-related heart attack, and it becomes apparent to her that... Samara is looking for They've her. They've been found, yes. Yes. And uh, she becomes concerned that her young son, Aiden, is about to be possessed by Samara, and she begins to look for a way to defeat the spirit once and for all. That sounds really good. Would you like to know what I thought was the scariest thing about The Ring Part 2? Let's hear it. In the special features, <laughs> they interview the actor who plays the son, uh... I don't see his name listed here. David Dorfman, maybe? Uh, he's like this 10, 11-year-old kid. 
and he talks like a erudite sort of mid thirties, you know, talking about how there hasn't been really a lot of really great horror movies made since The Exorcist. So it's really cool to be a part of the project. It's like this. <laughs> this little boy is way too smart, way too intelligent, and way too well spoken for his age. Hollywood has done something terrible to this child. I did not see a little boy. I saw a fully adult actor coming talking to this little boy. Which is a roundabout way of me saying that I didn't find the ring too particularly frightening at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a problem for a horror movie. Uh, do you disagree? I actually do. This is the only movie on this list, honestly, that gave me uh, some real scares. Um, first off, there was a scene where it becomes... Apparent- Don't say the deer. No, we'll get to that. Okay. There's there's a scene where it becomes apparent to Rachel that she has to drown her son in mm-hmm. order to make the uh, make Samara go away, and the lead up to that I thought was very well done. And then at the end, uh, we see Samara again climbing the walls of her well, mm-hmm. and that unnerved me quite a bit. So kudos. She to looked this cool as she was climbing the walls. I agree there. Yeah. Uh, and as far as her having to drown, because. Samara's possessing her son is basically the story that's happening here. And in order to shake her out of it, she drowned. So she holds her boy underwater and Samara panics and leaves him is the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was more the idea of that that was scary. I didn't find the sequence that frightening for some reason. Well, perhaps it's because I'm a dad, but I didn't like the idea of me having to drown (laughs) my own children in order to... And I am also a dad, and the idea has occurred to me. (laughs) No, I mean, of course, as a parent, you don't want to drown your kid, and there would be, I thought, some potent drama to be taken out of it. I didn't didn't feel it. Same way with, uh, there's a cameo role by Sissy Spacek, uh, Carrie herself, Mm -hmm. as uh, Samara's original uh, adopted mother who tried to kill her, tried to drown her, however it was. Again, that should have been a quite disturbing scene, and for some reason it just washed right over me. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of scenes that do that. They managed to get the atmosphere of the original down pretty Pretty close, yeah, Yeah. and so you get good memories that way, but there's just something missing in most scenes. And, you know, I mentioned the the drowning thing, the the lead-up to it is one of my favorite parts, but I also have to say that they handled the aftermath of that just awful. Like, okay, Aiden gets drowned, Samara goes out, and then uh, Rachel hauls Aiden out of the tub and... Resuscitates him. She doesn't even resuscitate him. He it just, just revives, <laughs> okay? So we were led to believe that he, she would have to sacrifice her son in order to defeat the evil, and then, oh, wonderful, there's no sacrifice. Everything is working out so well. We'll have, let her have her cake and eat it, too, in this regard. Exactly. It just totally took the wind out of the sails of the movie. And to go back to the concept of the original movie, and I do quite like the original, or the ring, or I keep saying the original ring, but the first ring, the American version. Yes. Uh, the morality of her, in order to save her son, she had to make her son make a copy of this tape and show it to someone. Because she'd shown the, the tape to someone else, and he'd died, and she had not. So <laughs> she did the math and figured out the same thing. Okay, great. But she's still responsible for a death, right? Yeah. That didn't seem to be looming over them at all. That didn't seem to be mentioned. That conceit seemed to be more or less dropped. Mm-hmm. No, in fact, there's a scene where she grabs the tape from the house of the latest victim and burns it. Well, okay, 
if she could have done that, why didn't she do it earlier after Aiden showed it to whoever was going to watch the next one? It seems a little bit more related, and uh, it doesn't do the same violence that the descent to did to the descent, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, these are the same characters again in a less good, less frightening movie. Yeah, so let's talk about a little scene. <laughs> yeah, we had to go there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This movie was chugging along pretty well. I was enjoying it. And then the deer scene happened. It's established in the first film that animals react weirdly around the presence of Samara. And as Samara is busy uh, possessing our, our, little, our little boy here, uh, we encounter some different wildlife. They go yes. a different route. In the first movie, it was a horse that went crazy and jumped off a ferry boat. And it was quite scary. It was a great sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, I think that the guy, they were the producers of this film saw that sequence and said, we need something like this in the ring too. Yeah, and so they thought to themselves, yeah, a horse, they have hooves, okay? We need some kind of undulate here, because undulates are scary, right? Yeah. So, yeah, they're in a car, and they get attacked by a herd of computer deer. Yes. It's basically the only way we can put it. Um, and these are not just any computer deer. These are poorly animated computer deer. Laughter-inspiring computer deer that will leave you breathless for ten minutes after the scene ends. It's meant to be horrifying, and it's meant to be a big, like, action beat in the movie, and it is spectacularly awful. It is hilariously offbeat. Like, this is, um, this should have been in, like, Scary Movie 5 when they were making fun of The Ring, (laughs) you know? This should have been a bad parody of The Ring. And like you say, the special effects, even the one that we get a good up-close look at, Mm-hmm. Like when there's a herd charging, yeah, the CGI tends to get sloppier. The more busy this the frame gets with the images, but even just the one animal standing there, it was like, did we just cut into an episode of Rocky and Bullwinkle? I was struck by the thought that the models they used for the CG weren't actual real deer, but maybe they went down to Walmart and bought some of those fake plastic lawn ornaments to work <laughs> right. from because they, they they look exactly like them and yeah Again, uh, it seems so needless too like we always bitch about cgi but could they not get footage of actual deer at any point there's another movie that does this that let take, me ask you this though before you go on would real deer have been any more scary deer aren't scary no, come well, on okay there's a flaw in just the conceit and that i will go but uh, is it the day after tomorrow? There's this terrible disaster movie where the world's freezing rapidly, and that's not enough jeopardy, so they have to add wolves to it. Yeah. And at no point at any time when they show the wolves are they actual wolves. They're always computer generated, even when they're in their cages. And I'm just like, give us an establishing shot of something real so that we can let our imagination do the work when the fucking computer <laughs> takes over. Like, dear lord. Dear Lord. Dear Lord. Uh, As a side note, too, I would like to point out that the first deer smashes Rachel's car window, and then in the very next scene, the car window is back. (laughs) (laughs) Poorly done. And this is not the only weird directorial choice either here. Like, there's a scene where Rachel decides to drug her possessed son, and she grabs a pill bottle and puts them in her hand, and they magically come out as powder. Like, what kind of pills are these? Easy grind? Yeah, we we, we (laughs) joked and called them easy grind pills. (laughs) 
perfect for drugging. Perfect for drugging your child. <laughs> Abuse your trust. Use easy grind pills. <laughs> Uh, again, um, I said when I, upon watching these movies again, that I thought maybe I was a little hard on the Ring Two and the Descent Two, as far as the terrible tool, terrible tool, terrible twos moniker. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Ring Two, I found creepy. It was a solid ghost story, and then it had that sort of extra kick at you at the end, which worked entirely for me. Yeah, and it, it creeped me out. And I've watched it several times, and I'll probably watch it again. I think I officially am done with The Ring 2. I can now no longer imagine a scenario in which I will find it a good idea to throw The Ring 2. I also also want to point out that it's very long. It is two hours and six minutes long, and it does not need to be. Mm, I actually didn't feel the time passing by. Really? There were, uh, for me, enough... You know, we, I've talked shit about this movie. Once again, there there are some good things here. I mentioned Samara climbing the walls at the end being mm-hmm. almost sublimely uh, t- uh, horrifying, but there's also other cool images like the water falling upwards in the bathroom, and I really liked that the possessed Aiden really enjoyed watching cartoons, and that's all he wanted to do. That's totally in keeping with the Samara. That's what a little character. girl ghost who spent too much time at the bottom of a well would probably really dig on. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there there were some good things about this show. Um, it certainly I think the was... bad kind of outweighed them for me, though. Like, yeah. I agree with you. Samara climbing up the well at the climax of it, she looks really inhuman and scary as she's going up the wall. But so much silliness had happened before that that mm-hmm. it just didn't it didn't didn't work for me. I was just like, at that point, I was like, well, we're close to the end for sure. <laughs> you know, like this almost a worthy sequel. One computer deer attack too many. And the really hurtful thing about it, too, is you get that they were trying. Like you said, the tone was right. That looked a lot like the first movie. They brought the original director from the original Ringu to direct it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's paying homage to the source material. And, and uh, no, it's that swing and a miss, baby. Swing and a miss. Agreed. At the stroke of midnight... On New Year's Eve of the last decade of the 20th century, America's largest city is about to pay for the nastiness of its inhabitants. When that day comes... When the slime starts to rise... The Titanic just arrived. When ghosts start arriving by the boatload... We gotta find the guys. There's only one thing to do. Sometimes weird things happen. Someone has to deal with it. And who are you going to call? That's sucking the guts, guys, with the Ghostbusters. The superstars of the supernatural are back to nuke the spooks. So five years after the release of what I called an immortal movie of my youth when we reviewed it a few episodes ago, Ghostbusters, the same cast, the same screenwriters, and the same director came together to bring us Ghostbusters 2. I was more than a little stoked about this. I was looking forward to it as well. I was really into the real Ghostbusters cartoons when I was a kid. I've rewatched some of those and they're not very good, but still, I was stoked. 
I, I, I hate to keep on reviewing the special features of these DVDs, but um, this <laughs> the DVD of Ghostbusters 2 contains an episode of the real Ghostbusters called Citizen Ghost. And I would say it's at least as good as the movie itself. High <laughs> <laughs> praise. We, I promised earlier an explanation of the uncanny. And I'll, you mentioned that it has this movie has the same writers, the same star, same director. They have both the same crazy imagination and impending Armageddons. They have troublesome bureaucrats. They have giant icons stomping through the streets of New York. They have ghost-catching montages and uh, ghosts running amok montages. And they have soundtracks that are grab bags of 80s pop and orchestral music. It should be the formula for success, should it not? It worked in 84. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the definition of uncanny uh, uh, courtesy of Wikipedia. The uncanny is a Freudian concept of an instance where something can be familiar yet foreign at the same time, resulting in a feeling of it being uncomfortably strange or uncomfortably familiar. Because the uncanny is familiar yet strange, it often creates cognitive dissonance within the experiencing subject due to the paradoxical nature of it being attracted to yet repulsed by the unobject at the same time. This cognitive dissonance often leads to an outright rejection of the object, as one would rather reject than rationalize. So basically, it is familiar enough that there are lots of things to like because of the earlier movie, but right. there was enough wrong with it that it made me really hate this movie for a very long time. <laughs> um, it's true. I had hate with a capital H for this movie for a long time. Since then, you and I have watched a lot of bad movies, so revisiting this, I was hoping that I would, I would see more to love. And you know what? I kind of did. I mean... I'm not giving it a positive review. I think it uh, it is it is a disservice to the original film. And considering how not good this is, I would have preferred it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, it's really, I think, the the positive energy slime that 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 kills it for me at the end of the movie. When 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 we're dealing with an animated Statue of Liberty being driven by the Ghostbusters through town, I know that the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was ridiculous, but it was wonderfully ridiculous. Yeah. There was something about the Statue of Liberty, maybe it's because I'm not a rah-rah American, or maybe it's just because it was that dumb, <laughs> that just did not work even a little bit well, for me. Well, the part of the problem with the Statue of Liberty in that case is they were trying to use it as a way to build up good mood, uh, good enough mood in the city of New York to destroy the evil slime, mm -hmm. sheltering the villain. However, I think if I was there, my reaction would be to run away yeah. and terror. And, you know, yeah, you say maybe it's because you're not a raw, raw American, but you know what? If the Vimy Memorial came alive and started walking through Saskatoon, I, I would, would be troubled by that. That yeah. would be troubling. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the, positive, the negatively charged slime becomes even more evil and the villain wins. So I didn't buy it. Did <laughs> I guess we it. didn't talk about the plot. Would you like to talk about the plot, Jerry? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. We might as well. Um, so it begins with the Ghostbusters in disgrace 
very dissonant from where we saw them because at the end of the first movie they were everybody heroes. in New York loved them they mm-hmm. were walking over a parade of their honor five years later they're hated for some reason yes they're, they were the result of class action lawsuits and they were not no longer allowed to practice ghost busting mm-hmm. uh, however Dana Barrett comes back with her concerns about her son being haunted by this uh, evil mood slime that's pulsing underneath New York and the Ghostbusters have to battle City Hall as well as an ancient evil sorcerer named Vigo the Carpathian. Right, who's in this painting. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, now, the there are bright spots of this movie. I, I think it's a little embarrassing though that the bright spots of this movie are not the main characters. Um, I think Rick Moranis does a great little... Uh, reprisal of his role as Lewis Tully. As I said, when we first reviewed Ghostbusters, Rick Moranis has a rich history of playing nerdy, like, (laughs) nebbish characters like this, but I have to believe this is his crown jewel. Yeah. (laughs) He returns and he does it again, but then I think, like, the real bright spot of this movie has to be uh, Peter McNichol. As Janusz Poha. Yes, this is the villain's sort of lackey. <laughs> yeah, is this horrible, slimy Eastern European guy. It's just his lines are delivered with such elegance. Everything you're doing is wrong. I want you to know this. <laughs> uh, why am I drippings with goo? You know, it's just so perfect. No, he was really good in it. And he was one of the char- few characters who really seemed to have something cool to do in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Once again, embarrassing that it's not our three heroes that... Uh, get all the laughs. I found most of their lines to not be that funny, honestly. Even Venkman was weak in this mm-hmm. movie. Like I said, uh, Bill Murray was uh, drag-kicking and screaming into the first film, so I assume he was drag-kicking and screaming into the second one as well. But Okay, least, I guess I'll earn millions of dollars. Yeah, I'll get more fans, more money, God. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he... Uh, at least in the first movie, Venkman was solid. He may have ignored the script and made up his own dialogue, but every fucking word that came out of his mouth was funny in that first movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, either he stuck to the script with this one, or he lost significant improv skills in the five years in between. Yeah, well, it, honestly, uh, my daughter watches Ghostbusters a lot. Right. Um The romance between him and Sigourney Weaver doesn't have a lot of juice in the first movie and there's even less in this one well and they're not even together in this one right well the, the romance is rekindled of course <laughs> yeah but all you it, gotta do is save a girl's baby and she's just gonna totally be all over you <laughs> it's even more unconvincing i honestly got the idea that sigourney weaver didn't like working with bill murray, bill murray so <laughs> <laughs> You could say, there. not only was there no chemistry, but there was a lack of chemistry this time around, perhaps. Is there such a thing as anti-chemistry? <laughs> yeah. But that's the sense of bouncy fun amongst the group wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm glad that they gave... Uh, um, what's his name? <laughs> I'm terrible... Ernie Hudson something to do in this movie. Yes. I complained about the fact in the in the first movie he was just clearly... The black Ghostbuster tacked gets, on at the last minute. gets introduced in the third act. See, look, we got a black guy, and he's nice and friendly. 
they gave him something to do in this. Actually, he played a part in the plot, and he helped to resolve things. So I, I, I guess that's an improvement. <laughs> but uh, this is me looking for positive things to say, okay. because there were scenes that were funny, but not anywhere near as funny as what we'd seen before. The special effects have improved. A little. Yeah. Um, the ghosts that we see, especially I remember the beginning in the courthouse, so these two guys that had been electrocuted, their spirits. Oh, my high. God, the Scalari brothers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean, they looked cooler than anything we'd seen in the first movie as far as a, a, a phantom or anything like that. Mm, definitely but, more convincing than the terror dogs. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But I still prefer the terror dogs at do the too. end of the day, you know? The terror dog puppetry was pretty freaking awesome. So we've tried to find some nice things about this movie. <laughs> okay. um, my main issue with this is, with this movie, the thing that really turns me off is the soundtrack. Uh, This is what makes Ghostbusters 2 an uncanny experience for me. And I think the... Probably the song that that showcases this would have to be um, the Run DMC reimagining of the Ghostbusters theme that they (laughs) play during one of those montages there. It's like the original Ghostbusters song, only... Much worse. Much worse. But it doesn't stop there. We've got Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew, and we've got this uh, horrible guy, which I really wish history would forget, Bobby Brown, doing a couple numbers. And, man, music in that era? Like, okay, 1984, music was not in such a great state. (laughs) 1989, unbelievably bad. (laughs) Nirvana Um, hadn't cracked yet. (laughs) We were waiting for something new to make music interesting again. (laughs) It had just gone to this horrible horrible place of decadence and you can instantly recognize music from that era because of the uh, percussion uh, effects and the orchestra hit too look mm-hmm. up orchestra hit put okay. it on there <laughs> <laughs> everyone will know that sound uh, and yeah the, it just doesn't stop with the pop music either you got Randy Adelman in Ghostbusters too. He's not as talented as Elmer Bernstein was right. from the first movie. The first movie had a, a jazzy soundtrack which added humor and lightness to the appropriate scenes and weight and heaviness to the parts that were supposed to be scary or unnerving. Mm-hmm. And for this one, we have Randy Adelman fucking around on an electric piano. And particularly, particularly during the romance scenes... It just threw me right off. I, 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 th- I thought, honestly, that Stephen Bishop was going to cut in singing, Something's telling me it might be you, you know? <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. And one last thing, too. There is a little bit of orchestral music on this, but there's a tape fuck-up on it. From when they were recording, you could hear a waver in the soundtrack. Why did nobody notice this in a multi-million dollar movie? And you know, by the time they were doing the final sound edit, they were so sick of looking at this footage. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> Put a fucking bow on it. It's interesting you're talking about. Well, I mean, movies that are set in a certain time period. Uh, sometimes fashions are so distracting as to actually hurt the scares. Yes, and. and uh, I mean, if you react that way, you can't help but react that way. But it's sort of like Jared and I reviewed this movie, Miracle Mile, which was made in 1989, and it was very much 
trying to be current when it was set. We are 1989. This is the world we're living in now. And I think when you watch that in 1989, it made that movie feel real. (laughs) But when you watch that movie in 2013, it doesn't. And like I said to Jared, I'm not going to give the movie a thumbs down on the basis that I don't like the fashion or the hair color or the music. But... I think it's almost a mistake to make a movie and say, this is a movie about now, because it almost guarantees you that you are not going to age well. Well, there were, I, I have to say, there are eras that the musical soundtrack ages better. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 80s is just not one of those eras, particularly the late 80s, leading up to about 1990, or was it 91, where we first heard... Anyway, you hear pop music and the scores from that era, and it just it gets it worse for me because it takes away from the tension, it takes away from the feeling, every the the scene. I just I can't stand it. Can't go on. This is a prime prime example of a movie that is ruined by its soundtrack, in my my opinion. Well, I think that this is a movie that just maybe shouldn't have been. There are some times where I feel like I know it's it's a guaranteed hit if you put Ghostbusters 2 or if they ever do finally make Ghostbusters 3 with or without the bill, uh, they'll probably make money on it. But I think that the Ghostbusters was such a quintessential 80s movie, was such a good, solid horror comedy and was so distinctly in its time and place that just let it be that. I wish that Hollywood was able to just let a movie be that. I would rather there were no sequels to The Descent, you know? Why did they, you know? Uh, and, and, and you know, when, it, when this movie came out, I would have said, no, please give me Ghostbusters 2, because I thought I wanted Ghostbusters 2. But I guess I didn't. Because I didn't, wouldn't particularly want someone else to write the film. I certainly wouldn't want a different cast for the film. And, you know... The director, uh, Ivan Reitman, did a great job with the first one, so sure, if he's willing to do the second one, all of the ingredients are here to, you know, to bring me back to that fantastic feeling I got every time I watched the original Ghostbusters. Well, part of the problem here is that, okay, perfect perfect example here, Uh, as they're turning on their proton packs... um, Peter says, do, Ray says, Ray, and then Egon says, Egon. (laughs) Okay, so that's not a very funny joke, and it's not carried out very well. So someone, maybe involved in the production of the movie, should have said to them, hey, uh, uh, Harold Ramis and um, Dan Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray, I'm really smart, and I know more than you, and I know that you had the, one of the most highest-grossing movies of all time, but I know everything, and that's not a very funny joke, so you should cut it, because no. I know everything, right? No. That's not going to happen. Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd is going to be like, no, 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 no. This is brilliant. We got slime that's positively charged. We're going to have a dancing statue of liberty, and I can move on to make the 90s debacle called Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> As I said in the last episode when we talked about uh, Ghostbusters, uh, I think Dan Aykroyd is a mad genius. I really do. But it goes both ways. Sometimes that genius will bring us Ghostbusters, and sometimes that genius will bring us Ghostbusters too. Quite. So, a little off the topic, feel free to edit this out here, but uh, we have, in this movie, it's set during a time right at the end of New York's dirty, filthy, grumpy, nasty phase, right? 
and it capitalizes on it. What is it the line the mayor says at some point is like, uh, uh, being an asshole and treating everybody like dirt is every New Yorker's God-given right or something like that. <laughs> I can't remember the exact line. But uh, that's the whole part of this movie is getting New Yorkers together to feel good about their city and feel good about their lives. Right. And it was not long after this movie came out that New York actually did dredge itself out of the filth that it was in. Uh, <laughs> do was we have this, Ghostbusters to thank? Do we have Ghostbusters to thank, or was it just part of the zeitgeist of the time? Were there other things that were happening at the time of Ghostbusters, or did Ghostbusters 2 really implant this seed? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get too political here in this Rankin review, but I think a big part of the facelift of New York might have had to do with September 11th, 2001. It was well underway before that. Yeah? Yeah. But as far as, well, maybe in New York it was, but as far as the the world perception. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. But we're not here to talk about that tragedy. We're here to talk about this one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I don't think it's quite to the level of The Exorcist 2 where I would absolutely say it does a disservice to the first one to watch it. I would say that. I would say, for me, I my life was not enriched by watching Ghostbusters 2. And although I didn't hate it as much as I remembered, don't bother, man. Ghostbusters, just watch Ghostbusters twice. <laughs> Seriously. And also, Vigo the Carpathian roars like a lion. Last summer, after the crowds left, five strangers returned to the woods to uncover the truth. But one of them has a secret that will unlock the curse. You know, if you don't believe in the Blair Witch, then why the hell did you bother to come? I thought the movie was cool. This fall, just in time for Halloween, the witch is back. All right, here we go. Now shit gets real. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. I, I, I mean, I, I don't even... Right away, why not Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows? <laughs> but uh, whatever. <laughs> That's my first critique. I actually picked up this movie uh, at the dollar store. Not because I wanted to see it again, although I now have watched it one and a half more times. <laughs> But because it was like a dollar and it had a commentary from director Joe Berlinger, who's won Academy Awards for doing documentaries on people who were wrongly convicted of ritual satanic murders. Uh, and there's apparently a fairly legitimate filmmaker in everything not having to do with Blair Witch. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to hear his commentary. Because I wanted him to justify this to me. <laughs> I wanted him to say that he had a plan and that it made sense to at least him. <laughs> yeah, and as chance would have it, it was recorded right before the Blair Witch came out, and everybody, t well, the world told him what they thought of Blair Witch 2, which was. Yeah, I think this is pretty much universally derided. I've heard exactly one person say anything vaguely positive about this movie. I believe it swept the Razzies. Wow. Yeah. It deserved to, because the, the cast on whole is pretty much appalling. 
Well, if I'm not mistaken, the one of the Razzies it won for was Worst Couple. Yes. And the basis on which it won that was pick any two people <laughs> yes. from the cast. <laughs> this is mean, and we're getting ahead of ourselves. But we are. I mean, we are. I've said before that this podcast is not all about hate, <laughs> but this particular episode has some hate. Right? I mean, but we're, we're we're focusing on this topic. The original Blair Witch Project, okay, a found footage film. First of all, this is not found footage at all. Um, there's a bit of faux documentary at the beginning, but once the opening credits happen, this is a straight-up movie. Um, they took pains to establish a world and a mythos of the Blair Witch, and they asked the viewer's imagination to do all of the work. Now, I realize that the original Blair Witch Project is a very divisive film. People seem to either really love it or really hate it. I'm in the really love it category. As am I. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, of course, the following Halloween, after the almost $200 million making Blair Witch, they want another Blair Witch movie. And they hired this guy, Joe Berlinger, to do it. And as we discussed when we watched this movie together, I think that the fatal flaw was they just hired the wrong dude to make this movie. Well, what did you think of Book of Shadows, brother? <laughs> I mean, you, you're... It's exactly right. There's a point in there where, in the commentary, once again, we're going into commentary and special features, but I think it's relevant here. <laughs> it's more interesting than talking about the movie in some ways. So what, he's, what he says at some point is he says, well, I'm a documentarian, and the original movie had lots of poorly framed shots and blurry shots and stuff like that. And that's not what documentaries do. And so he chose not to make it a found footage movie. But... You know, dickhead, the reason why the original movie was scary was because there were poorly framed shots and out-of-focus shots because the characters were too scared to pay attention to their DOP training. The, the cast was also your filmmakers, too, in that movie. Yes. They were told to go to certain areas, so when they find the creepy witch things hanging in the trees, the actors were actually seeing and reacting to that environment for the first time. So no, it wasn't crisply and perfectly shot. And no, it wasn't clean. And yes, they talk over top of each other. And yes, there's shaky camera. But mm -hmm. it's creepy. So, yeah. And you also mentioned that they took great pains to establishing the mythos of the Blair Witch. Which this undoes. Which it undoes by making the Blair Witch 2... Okay, how, how best to explain this? In the Blair Witch 2, in their universe, mm -hmm. the Blair Witch is just a movie. And the stuff that happened in the Blair Witch didn't really happen. But the hysteria created by the Blair Witch phenomenon apparently creates some craziness. Yes, and they go to Burkittsville, the site of the Blair Witch movie, and capitalize on the annoyance of the citizens at having Blair Witch seekers show up in their village, which is apparently is a real thing. I believe it. Yeah. But that's a huge disservice to the first movie. Saying, saying that, oh, it wasn't real, didn't really happen, let's just, let's just take a huge old fucking blood fart <laughs> all over the original yeah. and it's fascinating that they were okay with doing that I mean I'm sure the original filmmakers just got their check and walked away from it right but like 
they released faux documentary specials on the Space Network leading up to the release of the Blair Witch Project on the history of the the Blair Witch. To make it more real. To make it feel real to the people when they watched it. So they took such pains to, to establish this as a real history, to undo it in the first frames. I mean, right there, from when I read the screenplay, and I would be saying, no, we can't say the Blair Witch isn't real. That's stupid. <laughs> Start again. Yeah. That's what should have happened at so many points during this movie. But okay, it didn't. This is the movie we got. Mm-hmm. This is not where the problems stop. <laughs> no, no. The next problem is that this is not a supernatural movie. This is a movie where Joe Berlinger wanted to, or Berlinger wanted to, explore the idea that man was the monster and these crazy things that real people invented like the witch trials can overtake our psyches and make us do these horrible things to one another Mm -hmm. but you know what explore that idea on your own time and leave our documentary about it yeah leave our movie about the scary witch alone Mm -hmm. and he had all these lofty big ideas on the statement he was going to make and he spent no time on the characters I don't remember any of their names, but they're fairly easily... There's the crazy guy, mm-hmm. who we know has a history of being crazy. There's the goth chick, mm-hmm. who Who's has the sc- pale makeup and the dark eyes and is very judgmental of how weird everyone else is. And strangely for a movie in which he tried to ground it in the real world, is psychic. A psychic, <laughs> yes. She does seem to have legitimate... That's right. That's one supernatural element that is legit. She seems to be legitimately psychic. And unexplained. And then unexplained. And then my least favorite, the Wiccan chick. Okay. There's another couple of journalists who are there, too, that we'll talk about. But blah, 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 blah. The goth chick and the, and the Wicca lady, like... Their characters are appallingly written and appallingly acted, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted them to die. And I, like, that's not... Uh, Erica is the name of the Wicked Chick, and she is the most annoying character. Every scene, practically, she has a line about, you know, in the past, witches were unfairly persecuted by society. <laughs> so typical of these modern days, yeah. always trying to burn witches. <laughs> And at the, at the end of it, we're, we just we really want her dead. Yeah. Well, same thing with the goth chick. Like I say, both of them have their own little corners of the sandbox that they've uh, made for themselves. Mm-hmm. And they look down at these small-town yokels like a bunch of stupid hayseeds. Look at them. They don't get it. They need to dress up in this goth costume or pretend that they're a witch. <laughs> you just hate them so much so quickly. <laughs> but, you know, it's through Erica that we also get this huge... It's a window into the, the small amount of research that was done on witchcraft and Wicca for this movie. We begin to understand that the creators knew absolutely nothing. The fact that this character is a Wiccan, okay, that is a 20th century religion, kind of based on uh, pagan ideas of the past. But, okay, let's overlook, overlook that. The Blair Witch, during her lifetime, probably would have practiced something about as similar to Wicca as Scientology. Let's okay. forget that, okay? <laughs> uh, but there is no ancient pagan alphabet the word pagan, historically, was just a word used by monotheists to describe polytheists. There you go. And it's everywhere in Europe, everywhere in Asia, 
Those are all pagans. There is no ancient pagan alphabet, no ancient pagan culture, and the fact that they would suggest that there is, is ignorant. Okay, how about this, brother? There is no Book of Shadows in this movie. It no. is not made reference to. We do not see it. <laughs> we don't know it as a guidebook to the Wiccan mythology or whatever. Apparently, it's a real book. Yep. But they took the trouble of naming the film Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. There's no Book of Shadows. And it is not referenced once. Similarly, there's no heretic in Exorcist 2, the heretic. Uh, yes, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> These movies, they should get together and go bowling. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, well, um, I'm going to try and say some of the plot. <laughs> Should I? Um, okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> ten minutes into this review. Okay, the they're going to the site where they shot the fictional film of Blair Witch to do a Blair Witch tour. Two of them are writing a book that they can sell to suckers. Then two of them, like I say, are just completely annoying, <laughs> deluded judgmental bitches <laughs> and uh then there's one guy who we know vaguely has a history of being crazy and he's leading them and so maybe we think he's the bad guy since clearly as they establish in the first few seconds there's no player witch god <laughs> damn it you guys <laughs> so they go off uh, and they're having their little fun in the woods and all of a sudden they wake up and they've trashed their tent They've got weird symbols drawn on their bodies, and one of our characters has a fun-for-the-whole-family miscarriage, and uh, they go back into town. Now, you'd think after this traumatic experience, this is the point where everybody goes their separate ways and puts it behind them. No. No, they stick around they with each other. They all go and, and hang yep. out together in this big warehouse where the crazy dude lives. For no reason. For no reason. They just met each other the day before. Shit got really weird. And they stick around. Well, there are all of these strangely intercut, spliced-in scenes of them being naked and killing people. Yes, which apparently the director said in the commentary he did not want that in his film. Exactly. That was imposed on him by the studio. The suits forced that on him. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I can't say that they made the movie better or worse. They were just weird. <laughs> but anyway, maybe that's what they were going for. They wanted to figure out what really happened that night. Or... Well, and that's the thing about this movie. We don't know, nor do we ever know, from the beginning of the film till when the credits roll, what actually happened. There's the stuff that the characters think happened, there's the stuff that we're shown, but which one of those things is the conclusive truth is left up to us. Well, based on what Joe Berlinger said, I think probably the... Th they all went crazy they and killed each other. They all went crazy and killed each other. Is what he wanted, anyway. Mm -hmm. But you can interpret it however you want. It's that malleable and that stupid. I, had to, I did have to watch the, the director's commentary in order to come up with that uh, theory. And honestly, if you haven't seen it, you're completely mystified by the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're happy it's over. <laughs> But what does it mean? Why? 
Why? <laughs> Apparently there was plans of doing a, like a prequel after this. They were going to do like the history of the Blair Witch as an actual movie. And we get to see, you know, her, her, her origins and some of the terrible shit that happened. I heard they're going to make an, another Blair Witch. Actually, ten years later after Blair Witch 2 fucked everything up. <laughs> well, maybe they will. I mean, I think that would be a much more interesting movie. It's funny how many different and much more interesting options they had. And that they chose this script, this guy. Maybe Joe Berlinger is a genius. <laughs> Maybe. But he was the wrong guy to make Blair Witch 2. This is not his wheelhouse at all. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe they figured the Blair Witch 1, since it was pretty much an amateur film made by a couple of nobodies, we'll just give it to someone who'll do it cheap and we'll make another million dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they fucked the dog so thoroughly on this movie that they effectively killed the Blair Witch franchise. Up until this point, there were people with Blair Witch tattoos. I was playing Blair Witch video games. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Loved it. And with one movie, it went from being cool to being stupid. And it took me a long time to sort of crawl back to the cozy, creepy comfort of the original and remember, yeah, it was a great movie and it did deserve the hype. Blair Witch 2 was poorly conceived. Poorly planned, poorly written, and poorly executed. And I think, you know, the actual last line of this movie applies very well here. When one of the characters says, This tape is wrong. It's fucking bullshit. All right, Matt, we made it. We somehow made it through six reviews of these terrible, terrible twos. Um, How did you do your ranking here, just so we're on the same page? The number one was your favorite of all of these, or the number one was the worst? Okay, the number one is the best in this case. And I I also judged it not on the... I, I didn't take that much enjoyment from the badness of these movies, so I think it's fair to put the worst made movies at the bottom, even though I may have derived some enjoyment from the badness in right. them. So, uh, this is my list. Uh, very bottom, Exorcist II, The Heretic, for being a laughter-inspiring catastrophe. Uh, next is number five, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch Two, for being shorter than Exorcist II. <laughs> Then number four is the Descent Part 2 for an uninspired and contrived return to the cave. Number three is Ghostbusters 2 for not being very good. Uh, two is Gremlins 2, the new batch. Uh, this was a tough choice for me because I like this movie about as much as I like Ghostbusters 2, but <laughs> at least it was a good movie when I was 13, so <laughs> it, it's got some points there. And then lastly, The Ring 2 
for achieving something the other films did not actually accomplish, which was frightening me. <laughs> Very briefly, but it, it managed to do it. Wow, dude, we're really close, but again, just <laughs> sadly, just, just slightly God off. <laughs> yeah, well, the worst of the bunch is The Exorcist to The Heretic, and it's not just because it's longer than The Blair Witch 2 <laughs> for me. It, this was like, it was oppressive. This movie was really like a, a dead weight on me. It was... It was bumming me out to watch it, even with either... We agreed that we wouldn't talk about the movie while we were watching it when we screened this together. So I couldn't even look over at you and say, Son of a bitch, this is terrible! <laughs> no, it's just the fall. The fall in quality from the original film to this one is even greater than that of my next pick, which is, of course, <laughs> Blair Witch 2, The Book of Shadows. I really thought that was going to be on the bottom, but I think actually listening to some of that commentary made me have some pity on the director. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A, he was the wrong guy for the job, and B, the, the producers in the studio took over. But even if he made his own film, and even if he had his director's cut, I am very confident that this would be an absolutely appallingly not good movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> number four is where I put Ghostbusters the second. Where are three and four switched on the our other three list? Three and four ah, were yeah, switched yeah. as well. Anyway, yes. continue with your bullshit list. Let's hear the rest of it. Okay, fine. Well, I, we talked pretty thoroughly about Ghostbusters 2. It was just like a bad, bad photocopy of the original. So, and then I went with The Descent 2. And I think this is the one where, where you say you gave some points to The Ring 2 because it did have some scares to it. Yeah. Uh, it did have some scares to it. But it also completely, completely undid a lot of the stuff that I liked about the original film. And because of that, I kind of wish this movie didn't exist. It does exist. It's not the worst of these movies. But it is definitely a terrible two. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So number two in Terrible Twos is The Ring Part Two. Um, <laughs> I, I think that might have edged out Gremlins 2 for number one, but I found the length of it oppressive. And like I said, it didn't scare me. It didn't scare me. I think I was so off-put by the attack deer and the, uh, you know, just off-tune moments of the first half that even when it started to be a half-decent movie in the second half, we didn't even mention Simon Baker. <laughs> I kind of liked the business with the Simon Baker trying to be the good the good fellow of the group and protecting the who he thought was abusing her son, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Interesting enough angle, but too late in the movie for well, it to be of any matter. It didn't work out very well for him. And then Gremlins <laughs> 2, uh, which again, as a child, I probably, like, I, I really, really didn't like. But upon revisiting it, there's some guilty laughs to be had in here. There's some meta-comedy to be had in here. It opens with the Warner Brothers cartoon. Um, it's not boring. <laughs> yes. Um, it's not the original movie either. And I don't think the original Gremlins is such great shakes. This is another thing. It, it shouldn't have been hard to make a good sequel to the Gremlins. But uh, they decided instead of being scary and entertaining to go the other way. Yep. That's yeah. my rank and review of well, those six terrible okay. tweets. You, you got some good points there. I still think you got to reverse numbers one and two. Because really, we're watching horror movies here. And Gremlins 2 is not a horror movie. Yeah. And the Ring 2 actually was scary at some points. 
Forget the computer, dear. I know you can't. <laughs> but forget them for a second. Remember Samara climbing up the wall. Okay? And that really approaches what we're trying to do enjoying horror movies. Mm-hmm. You do not see that in any of the other shows here. Um, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I think I'm going to stick to my guns here. I mean, there was silliness to the original Gremlins. What they basically did was jettison the scares and embrace the silly. But, you know, whatever. I didn't like any of these movies. These are not positive reviews. Yeah. (laughs) But if I have to rank them, I mean, if I had to watch one of these movies again, if someone put a gun to your head and said, you have to watch one of these six movies... (laughs) Right Actually, now. that's a really good point. <laughs> oh, well, I made my decision. I'm sticking by it, too. <laughs> Thank you for the ranking review. You ready for some cherries? Yeah. Mr. J. Adrian Cook, you are the namesake of these Jerry's, the Jerry Awards. You brought them into this world, and I guess you're in a position to take them out. (laughs) I am fascinated to hear what Jerry's are going to be given out this episode. I'm happy that it's your responsibility, because I wouldn't know where to begin. All right, well... Uh, Keeping in mind what Stephen King says about the three types of horror being gore and horror and terror, I have three different uh, categories here to to mention here. First, best kill. We know this one. Uh, I was originally wanting to give this one to Elizabeth Perkins for taking an empty syringe and... Stabbing herself in the neck with it. Yes, and then plunging plunging it down and giving herself a nice air bubble to the brain. That affected me on many levels, probably because of that whole artery business I have. But in the end, I'm going to give it to the subhuman in Descent 2 who uh, has a big boulder land on its head... (laughs) And then the ceiling continues to collapse downward, and then his head goes <laughs> all over the rock. Just perfect. Uh, next is the best scare. We're also familiar with that. This, uh, this goes to the greatest moment of uh, horror, the part that's like, boo! And it goes to Samara, scrabbling up the walls of her well in the ring, too. Okay. Um, best freak out. This is... The moments of terror leading up to the scare. That uh, goes to uh, screenwriter Aaron Kruger for the dread that Rachel is going to drown her own son in the ring, too. But I'm afraid I have to revoke the award oh. because of how poorly the uh, aftermath was handled with Aiden just waking up. Da, 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 da. Well, that's what happens when you drown, right? You get out of the water and you're fine. Yep. Mommy, <laughs> what happened? Okay, so... Uh, next, we have Biggest What the Fuck. That goes to Sheriff Cravens, laid, uh, played by Lanny Flaherty, for calling his chief murder suspect to tell him, Don't leave town! This happens in Book Blair of Shadows. Witch that's Witch right, I was going to mention that. Because <laughs> that's good law enforcement. Call your chief suspect and say, We're on our way to, rest to arrest you. Do not leave. Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my, the biggest unintentional laugh goes to director Hideo Nakata for the computer deer attack. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's for ring two. <laughs> Best performance, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna give to Peter McNichol in Ghostbusters too, uh, for. Making me laugh so consistently. Absolutely. Honestly. I mean, he was making the best of a bad situation there. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways he had the juiciest part in the mm-hmm. script. <laughs> but well, now that was a tough choice, too, because once again, great acting on the part of James Earl Jones, keeping his uh, straight face while wearing a costume. Somehow retaining his dignity. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, worst performance, once again, really tough one for me. Um, it's... Uh, I really want to give it to Erica Learson uh, as Erica, the shit-annoying Wicked Girl from Blair Witch 2. Right. But in the end, I'm going to give it to Linda Blair for projecting like she's in a community theater. Oh, Kirby, thanks for the award. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. She looks like Miss Piggy in that movie. I'm not crazy. (laughs) It's funny too, though, that Miss Piggy hadn't been invented by that that time, had or, she? Or if she had, she was brand new. Yeah. There's something about the lighting in that movie and just the roundness of her face. I don't know. It sounds really mean, Linda Blair. I know you're a big fan of the podcast, and I'm going to apologize if that hurt your feelings. But The Exorcist Two was an abortion of a movie, and you looked like Miss Piggy. <laughs> Those are my juries. Thank you so much for doing another episode of Rankin Review with me, Jeremy. Hopefully, if you decided to go around three with me, you'll like some of the movies. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure to choose some good ones next time. Um, once again, if you enjoyed listening to me, which, you know, whatever. Uh, you, can list, you can read my blog, pharophobia uh, at blogspot.com. P-H-A-R-A-O-H. Phobia. And don't forget your band. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got this band called The Residuals. You should listen to some of their music. It's Irish music. Actually, uh, if for some reason, after listening to this episode, you're inspired to watch any of these movies, yeah. please don't. But if you are, I would recommend you, you, you put in The Residuals CD and turn the sound down on the movies. They will be as scary as they were with their original soundtrack. <laughs> All right, um, let's uh, try our best to forget this little incident happened, Larry. <laughs> um, yes, from now on, may all our sequels not suck. Jeremy and I were a little too hard on these terrible twos, you should write us and let us know. You can do that at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. My name is Larry Parsons. I'm your host and random Canadian. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>